This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're finishing up the Epic of Gilgamesh. You'll see that the ancient Sumerian underworld is basically just the saddest restaurant ever with a super weird dress code. And the creature this week is a helpful little guy who is both clothed, a nice change, and will work for free. The downside? His terrible hygiene is legendary. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 54C, Dust. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's show is brought to you by Capital One's CreditWise app. Capital One created the CreditWise app, so you can check your credit score anytime you want, right in the app. It's free to everyone, so download CreditWise today. Legal disclaimer, availability depends on the presence of credit history from TransUnion. CreditWise is offered by Capital One Bank, USA and A. Previously on the podcast, we met Gilgamesh, the king of the city of Uruk in ancient Mesopotamia. He was sent a supernatural best friend named Enkidu, and together they had a lot of adventures, which mainly just involved killing monsters and stealing timber. Because of this killing and stealing, Enkidu was cursed to die by the gods. And we'll jump right back into the story with a very sick, very angry Enkidu. Gilgamesh could see the fear on his friend's face. It was fear Gilgamesh had not seen when they were facing Hugeness the Giant, or the Bull of Heaven. Enkidu seemed to know that he was going to die. The pair wept together. Enkidu did not want to go to the world of the dead. To forever leave his brother's side, Gilgamesh half-heartedly reassured his friend. He put Enkidu in the best room overlooking the city. Enkidu could see the large cedar gates and the walls, made from the wood that they had taken from the forest. It might have just been the fever, but Enkidu began cursing the very wood itself. It was because of the wood that he was dying. But then, he thought of another. There was someone else far more deserving of his scorn. Someone who was responsible for everything that had gone wrong in his life. If you're thinking that person ultimately responsible for his pain is Gilgamesh, what with prodding him to go on the journey in the first place, you would be quite wrong. The person is obviously the young trapper from the first episode. The young man who found him, and who he unwittingly terrorized with his hairy nakedness. He screamed at the rising sun, for the sun god, Shamash, to curse this trapper, make him small and feeble, and make every animal escape his traps for what he did to Enkidu. Well, that's not very nice, he heard behind him. I think I had some hand in that. Are you going to curse me too? He painfully rose to his elbows, to see the priestess of Ishtar, called the harlot in the first episode, standing at the doorway with her arms crossed and a smirk on her face. She had heard he was sick and she wanted to visit her old friend. Maybe she expected a warm reception, but Enkidu was in no mood for a warm reception. He said, yes, he had plenty of curses left for her and began shrieking them in her general direction. For as sick as he was, his curses were surprisingly creative. He prayed to the sun god that she, among many other things, would not have a roof over her head, that she would need to do her business, in places befouled by the vomit of drunkards, and finally, that she would fall asleep at the end of hard days on top of dunghills. To give you some idea of how highly regarded these women were, Enkidu's god, Shamash, called down from heaven, saying, basically, Enkidu, really? 
She's done nothing but help you since she met you. She gave you wisdom, taught you how to not choke on bread, and taught you how to drink from goblets so you don't need to suck sheep. Also, if it weren't for her, you wouldn't have met Gilgamesh. You would have been robbed of all these years with him. Seriously, cut it out. Enkidu sighed. He knew Shamash was right. He called the priestess to his bedside and blessed her instead. He was so caught up in fighting Gilgamesh when they parted years ago that he never got a chance to say thank you. She squeezed his hand and he said goodbye to the woman who had given him so much. Gilgamesh spent long hours with his friend and adopted brother, slowly watching the once great warrior waste away, and Kiddu lamented. He was sad he would die in his bed and not facing some great beast in battle. He would never have children, he would never fall in love, and most of all, he would need to leave his brother. Enkidu died peacefully, with Gilgamesh by his side one morning, as the sun was rising to greet them both. Enkidu could see the darkness of the plain, and the sky stretching off into the interminable distance. This wasn't right. Last thing he remembered, he was sick in bed. He shouldn't be walking. But that wasn't the last thing he remembered. The last thing he remembered was... Then he realized this was it. He was dead. Then it didn't matter. Something was coming for him. Something in the sky. It had large bird wings, the feet of a lion, and the talons of a bird for its front legs. It had the mane of a lion, and the face of a vampire, my translation says. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but regardless, it was like a vampire griffin and it was coming for Enkidu. Even before Enkidu thought to run, it had him, the talons digging into his arms. Enkidu struggled, but his hairy muscles were useless. Also, they ceased to be hairy muscles. Gripped in the arms of the vampire griffin, Enkidu's arms began to warp and itch and burn. Soon, they were no longer arms, but wings. Feathers began to sprout painfully from them, and then from the rest of his body. His clothes fell to the ground as they flew, and soon he was covered in feathers, like a really grotesque big bird that has been doing some serious weightlifting. Enkidu lost track of how long he was carried in the creature's grip, but soon they approached a mountain. They weren't going to the top, though. They were going underneath. The monster dipped and dove into the cave at the base of the mountain. Winding through, they came to a stop before a large, simple wooden door. The creature dropped a big bird Enkidu and flew off out of the cave. The door before Enkidu creaked open. In my mind, though scared and confused of what lay before him, Enkidu knew that was the path he must take. This was where he belonged. This was the underworld. He walked in the dim room, and the doors closed behind him. In the room, it was as if there were candles flickering. Somewhere, it was cold and drafty and just lit enough so that Enkidu could see what would be his fate. All along the room were tables and tables and tables, of other former humans, but they too were all bird-like. They sat slumped over meals, eating slowly, reluctantly. They had tragic, resigned looks on their faces. They didn't even look up at Enkidu. There would always be new ones in this place. Enkidu walked on until he saw the queen of the underworld, standing before him with a tablet. She motioned to a chair at the table. That was to be Enkidu's. Enkidu obeyed. He knew that this was to be his lot. He knew that there was no escaping the house of dust, as it's called, 
He took a seat, and someone brought him a plate. He thought it was meat when they walked in, but as he felt it, barely through his feathers, he knew that it was just a cold, damp lump of clay. The rest of the meal was dust. He raised the clay to his mouth and took a big, tasteless bite. He chewed and swallowed. The same look of resigned sadness as the others began to creep over his face. He sighed. This was it. This would be Enkidu's life, or afterlife, forever. Several years later, a ragged, bearded, and dirty man covered in animal furs was striking flint. Trying to make a fire, he had to hurry. He was far, far from the towns, and there will be lions, wolves, or worse, that stalked the night, peering out from the darkness. He would need the fire. A half an hour later, a fire roared before him. An hour after that, he was asleep. An hour after that, he awoke. He was surrounded. There were lions. It could be worse. They probably just found the fire. He had come so far on this journey, he wouldn't have victory snatched from his hands by what? A mere dozen hungry lions in their natural habitat? No, not today. He reached for his 400 pound battle axe, known as the Might of Heroes, flung his animal skins aside, and roared before charging the lions with his axe. It only took killing about four of them before they retreated. Gilgamesh took some scratches, but he would survive. His back was riddled with scars. He had left Uruk a decade ago, chasing rumor and superstition. He was getting close, though. Soon, he would have it. If there was anyone on Earth who was Gilgamesh's equal, it was Enkidu. Gilgamesh had told himself, years ago, when Enkidu first showed up, that he was okay with dying, that it happened to all men, and that he would leave a name and a legacy and his name carved into stone. He watched Enkidu struggle in his final days against death, though, and he saw how futile it all was. Enkidu's great name didn't comfort him or make the passing any easier. Enkidu's name would live on, and even his image would live on in the statue that Gilgamesh built of him, but the name would eventually be forgotten, and the statue was hollow. Meanwhile, Enkidu, the real Enkidu, was being eaten by worms in the ground. As he looked on Enkidu's body, a terror crept into Gilgamesh and stayed with him. Days passed, they buried Enkidu, but still the terror stayed with him. He couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep, he began to seek answers on how to be like the gods, how to live forever. He learned of one man who lived in a far-off land, someone who had lived for eons, someone who had even survived the Great Flood. His name was Utnapishtim, called the Far Away. He was considered to be a legend. No one knew at the time before the Great Flood. There was only one way to know. He had to seek out the rumors, the legends, the half-truths. He had to do everything he could to find the man and learn his secret. He had to find a way to save himself from death. Gilgamesh left Uruk the next day. It had been a month after Enkidu had been laid to rest. Stepping away from the story real quickly, Gilgamesh was scared of the afterlife because, as we saw, the afterlife was confusing and terrifying. Death was the end. There wasn't like a heaven or a hell. The underworld wasn't a place of great pain or happiness. It just was. Also of note, the afterlife ranges from a house of dust as I depicted, to a whole sprawling city in the netherworld where you have to fight across a demon-infested plain, take a ferry, and get permission to enter. One time when Ishtar made her way to the underworld, she had to remove an item of clothing at each of the seven gates until she made it to the center. Anyway, back to the story. Years later, Gilgamesh finished skinning the male lion and prepared the hide. 
Wearing the lion skin as a cloak and its head and mane as a hood, he thought that this was a good look for an overly muscular epic hero and wondered if it would catch on in about a thousand years. It was another few months of hard traveling, but Gilgamesh finally saw it. The green mountains, called Mashu. He walked another few miles and found the gate, but there was a problem. Scorpion guards, of course. They were like centaurs, but instead of the lower half of their body being a horse, it was a horse-sized scorpion. I know if I tried to fight them, I would die either way, but I would much rather face a centaur than a Mesopotamian scorpion man. I'm kind of picturing The Rock or Dwayne Johnson in The Mummy Returns, but with better CGI. The scorpion men were able to kill people not only in the very obvious way, but also with a single look. If someone who wasn't a member of the gods looked at them in the eye, that person would drop dead immediately. Personally, I would love to know what the work conversation of two bored ancient Mesopotamian scorpion guards sounds like, but alas, that is lost to history. Gilgamesh looked to the ground. He wasn't sure if what he sought was behind that door, but two scorpion guards were the best sign that he had seen in years to tell him that he was on the right track. He had the might of heroes, his axe, so he could fight them. He hoped it wouldn't come to that. He took a deep breath, still looking at the ground, and walked out from the bushes. Guard one side. Some vagabond was approaching the gate, again. Then he saw the extraordinarily heavy axe, and began to get worried. Guard one yelled for Gilgamesh to turn around. This super cool mountain passageway to the Garden of the Gods didn't concern him. Guard two said, really, you're just going to tell him what we're guarding? You know what, I'm not going to get written up for this. I'm just going to go sting him. When he looked back at Gilgamesh, though, their eyes met. And unlike 99% of the people that approached this gate, they didn't need to drag Gilgamesh's body to the river. Gilgamesh is said to be anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters demigod. And unlike my fairly liberal paraphrasing of what just happened, that number is not a joke. The character cites it in a lot of stories, and it's used as a justification for why he didn't die when the scorpion men looked at him. His dad was a demigod, and his mother was a full goddess. So he had just enough god in him to not die when facing scorpion men or pagan super bovine, but enough human to still die someday. The scorpion guard said that not dying when they looked at a person was basically the only credential for entering the mountain, so Gilgamesh was welcome to go ahead. The Garden of the Gods was on the other side, and Gilgamesh could ask them about Utnapishtim, but it was not a fun trip. The scorpion men would close the door behind Gilgamesh, and he would be enveloped in darkness for 12 leagues, so 41 miles or 66 kilometers. It was a wide open cavern, a hollow mountain. There wasn't even a wall to guide him. He had to walk straight through. Gilgamesh stood there just staring at them. Okay, and what, is it just a dark room? No demons or super cows or anything? The scorpion men said, I, I mean, it's a really big room, 41 miles. Gilgamesh shrugged. Oh, okay. He had been living off the land for years. He had fought a group of lions just a few months ago. A dark cavern would be like a vacation. The scorpion men opened the door and led him into the darkness. The trek through the darkness was, surprisingly, uneventful. It was long, but Gilgamesh had come too far to give up here. For 41 miles, he kept his path straight, until emerging into the sunlight on the other side. This stinky wild man, beard tangled and hair everywhere, emerged into the Garden of the Gods and crashed a nice little lunch that they were having. This was supposed to be a happy day for Gilgamesh. After spending years in the wild and the days walking through the darkness, he could finally ask Shamus for everlasting life. He wouldn't even need to find Utnapishtim. Shamus, the sun god, took him aside 
But before Gilgamesh even had a chance to ask, Shamash just said, I'm sorry. Gilgamesh swallowed hard and Shamash continued, They will never let you have it. No mortal has ever set foot in the garden of the gods, and no mortal will ever set foot here again. You will never find the life for which you are looking. I'm sorry. Gilgamesh looked at him and refused to accept it. He wasn't going to stay in the garden. If the answer wasn't here, it was somewhere. There was still Utnapishtim, the one who had survived the flood. He was still out there, somewhere. Gilgamesh didn't need Shamash. He would find a way to live forever, even if it killed him. Spurning in his god, Gilgamesh stood up and walked away. Even before Shamash was finished talking, Gilgamesh didn't know where to go next. But being in the Garden of the Gods and the land beyond the mountains was a fairly good start. Coming up next, we'll see that, when questing, if at first you don't succeed, drinking wine on the beach until you come up with a better idea is apparently a pretty solid course of action. And that will be right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. On a quest for epic gear, housewares, and collectibles, Loot Crate brings you between four and six of the coolest curated mystery items every month, straight to your doorstep. It's the best surprise you know is coming. I've been a Loot Crate subscriber for months, and I've liked all the crates, but next month sounds awesome. The January 2017 crates theme is Origins, and has exclusive items from old school favorites, and it features Superman, Captain America, Mario, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and includes, as always, the monthly t-shirt and pin. This crate sounds perfect. I mean, Superman and Cap are great, of course. I loved the Ninja Turtle series from the 80s and 90s growing up, and though I'm objectively terrible at every Mario game, I grew up failing hard at them on Super Nintendo. I hate those moving platforms. But unlike those moving platforms that always seem to dart away at the last moment and send Mario careening down a cliff, Loot Crate is a nice surprise that you are sure will be there every month, but you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive this month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So make sure to head to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends to save $3 off any new subscription today. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers fresh, sustainably sourced seasonal ingredients and easy to follow recipes to your door every week so that you can make awesome meals. I've been a Blue Apron subscriber for a while now and I love it. Not only is it one more night where we don't need to think of something to make, but it takes all the stress out of putting together a meal because they come with fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients. It's super cool. It helps me to learn more about food and cooking. For instance, I now know what a kumquat is and how good it can be in a recipe, and me and my family hang out and make a good meal together, all for less than $10 per person per meal. Every single meal we've gotten from Blue Apron has been great, and the menu from December included roasted pork and braised cabbage with barley and glazed apples. Thai green coconut curry with sweet potato and jasmine rice, and brown butter and chestnut gnocchi with Brussels sprouts and pea shoot salad. And you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com legends. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com legends. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Gilgamesh was on his third goblet of wine, and feeling much, much better about his prospects. 
He didn't have any reason to feel better, though. His prospects hadn't improved at all. A winemaker, a goddess named Siduri, had invited him into her tavern. It was after she saw Gilgamesh wandering down the beach, and assuming he was a felon, since he looked like someone who had escaped some manner of dungeon. She shut her gates, and he started pounding on it, and threatening to break down the gate if Siduri did not let him in, that not being an especially convincing argument for letting someone in your house. He played the, don't you know who I am, card, and when he said Gilgamesh, her ears pricked up. If he was Gilgamesh, why did he look like that? Cue the sob story of how he lost Enkidu. I've actually saved you from it, because he told the exact same story to everyone he met. Of how Enkidu died, was eaten by worms, and Gilgamesh realized he was terrified of dying, so he undertook an epic and extremely dangerous quest to beat death. When he was done, she opened the gate and told him to clean himself up and get something to eat. She was nice and tried to convince him to just let go of his quest and just live out however many years he had left. Meet someone, have children, plant a garden, carve out an epic on some tablets, you know, retired demigod stuff. Gilgamesh said there was one more lead he had to follow up on. Utnapishtim, the one who survived the Great Flood. Gilgamesh knew he was out there, somewhere. Oh, yeah, he's definitely out there somewhere. Kind of literally, actually, Siduri said, reclining with another cup of wine and pointing across the ocean. He lives out across the ocean and beyond the waters of the dead. See that guy with his boat down there by the water? He's a ferryman. He travels there sometimes. He probably won't take you, though. He's kind of picky about who he takes across the waters of death. Gilgamesh did not even wait for her to finish her sentence. He leapt to his feet, pushed open the gate, and ran to the coast. He found the man there, who has a long and complicated name I won't attempt. We'll just call him the Ferryman, because that's exactly what he does. Gilgamesh had tried asking politely for immortality, but he met with a hard no. He was going to try a different tactic with the Ferryman. The Ferryman was carving something on the coast, and Gilgamesh leapt from the forest, bearing the might of heroes, his 400-pound battle axe, and brought it down hard on the Ferryman's project. The Ferryman jumped to his feet. He said he didn't know what the stinky guy with the axe wanted, but the Ferryman did not want trouble. Staring down the might of heroes at the man, Gilgamesh told the Ferryman that the Ferryman would be taking him across the waters of death to meet Utnapishtim. The Ferryman looked back at him. Uh, no. No, I won't. Not today. Maybe not ever. Gilgamesh exhaled loudly. Do you know who I am? The demigod asked. I'm Gilgamesh, the one who killed Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven and all of that. Okay, that's nice, but look down, the ferryman said. See what you smashed with that entrance of yours? Yeah, it's the prow of my ship. And all the rocks that protect us from the water of death. I don't know how much you know about boating, but having the front of a boat is kind of important. Do you know what happens when you touch the waters of death? I'll give you one hint. It's in the name Waters of Death. Oh, Gilgamesh said, so you don't have any issue with taking me across? It's just the boat? No, of course not, the ferryman replied. I'm a ferryman, it's what I do. Gilgamesh was pretty excited about leaving, and he was also pretty insistent. With his 400-pound battle axe, the ferryman made some hasty repairs to the demolished front of the ship, and they set out that afternoon. Cut to them being a few hours out in the open ocean, and the boat starting to take on water. They weren't in the waters of death yet, so they didn't need to worry about that just drowning, or being eaten by something in the open ocean, so, you know, no big deal. Gilgamesh, though, wasn't ready to turn around. In his immortality or bust quest, he had never been closer. He grabbed an oar and began rowing. Gilgamesh, as we know, is capable of some superhuman feats. It should come as no surprise, then, that with the long oars, he and the ferryman turned the small vessel into an ancient Mesopotamian speedboat. It lifted the front out of the water, and they kept it from capsizing. 
and soon they were flying through the waters of death. As a quick point, the speedboat thing was my little addition. Gilgamesh damaged the boat in some way, in addition to the rocks that protected them. The book says that he propelled the boat along with 90 foot or 27 meter long poles to keep them from touching the water. And I looked in various translations, summaries, and academic journals and could not find a clear answer for what went wrong with the boat. So I thought an ancient world speedboat would be fun. Anyway, back to the story. Gilgamesh saw the land and he saw a man relaxing on the beach. The boat skidded to a stop on the beach and the ferryman and Gilgamesh climbed out. By way of the insufficiently patched prow, the ferryman greeted the man on the beach, and then Gilgamesh looked at the stranger, asking who he was. The man smiled. I'm Utnapishtim, and you are? Gilgamesh couldn't really get over it. The oldest man on earth, the only one to survive the flood, and the only one who would never see death, was this? He wasn't some king on his throne, some emperor, or some great warrior, but some guy in breezy clothes relaxing and drinking wine on a beach? Gilgamesh stepped forward and told the man his name. And the man just looked at him. Okay, so why are you here? That really wasn't the question to ask Gilgamesh, because he laid out his whole violent, tragic resume before Utna pitched him. Gilgamesh was at the end of his journey. This was it for him. If Utna pitched him couldn't help him find everlasting life, then he was truly doomed, eventually, in the way that literally every human is doomed. Utnapishtim had the secret to the life he sought. Utnapishtim took a gulp of wine and waited, letting Gilgamesh stew in anticipation. The man stood up and stared out at the ocean. He said in what I think is a profound, yet kind of misplaced quote, there is no permanence. Do you build a house to stand forever? Do we seal a contract to hold for all time? Do brothers divide an inheritance to keep it forever? Utnapishtim took another gulp of wine. Gilgamesh looked around. Was was that an answer? The ferryman shrugged. Gilgamesh turned back to Utnapishtim. Okay, but you survived the flood and were given life by the gods. How did that happen? That seems pretty permanent. Utnapishtim offered Gilgamesh a cup of wine and told him to take a seat on the beach. Now that was a long story. A long time ago, humans grew and multiplied. In the main version of the story I've been using, it was Enlil that started the conversation. Humans were way too loud. There were too many of them, and it was impossible for the gods to get any sleep. Stomping on the floor and telling the humans to quiet down was no longer cutting it. He decided to mm, evict his loud downstairs neighbor in the most violent way possible. If this sounds like a petty reason for sending a flood to exterminate every last human, well, there are other narratives that say humanity had become wicked and evil and disrespectful and that the gods just wanted to format the old earth hard drive and start over. And yeah, how many cutesy phrases can I come up with for the complete extermination of life on earth? The god that proposed the idea was our old buddy, Enlil, who would have some beef with Gilgamesh later, pun definitely intended. There was dissension among the gods though, and though Enlil was kind of a kingly figure and he was supported by Ishtar, there was one who actually liked some of the humans and all the other life on earth, which invariably involved puppies and kitties. So yeah, understandable. This god knew he had to do something. His name was Ea, spelled Ea, and he found his friend, Utnapishtim, and said that he had some good news and some bad news. Utnapishtim and his family and their servants built a boat, and they loaded as many animals as they could aboard, tame and wild. When his family, servants, and the animals were aboard, 
Utnapishtim looked out and saw the dark storm clouds. He said goodbye to the world he knew, took a deep breath, and boarded his ship. It wasn't a slow ramp up, like in the Bible, with 40 days and 40 nights of rain. It came down, hard. It was raining so heavily that first day that a man couldn't see his brother standing right next to him. And one day, the world Utnapishtim knew was flooded. In two days, the last of the screaming stopped. Up in heaven, Ishtar wept. She watched as the people who survived the initial deluge became exhausted and, finally, slipped below the water, only to float up minutes later, face down, looking out on the flooded plain, clogged and crowded with bodies as far as the eye could see. It was said that the great gods of heaven and hell wept. They covered their mouths. What had they done? The people out there, the people were their people, their creation. Now, all the ages before the flood were gone, washed away. There was a deep and somber silence in heaven. The rains continued for six more days and six more nights. When Utnapishtim heard the rain had stopped, he opened the hatch and despaired. The world he had known was nothing but water stretching on for leagues and leagues. Slowly the waters receded though. I mean, they kind of need to for us to exist. And Utnapishtim did something similar to Noah, where he let a bird go. In this case, it was a dove, a swallow, and then a raven. Eventually, he found a mountaintop, and what was the first thing he did? He made a sacrifice to the gods. Ishtar, Ea, Shamash, and the others immediately noticed, and there was a collective gasp in heaven. Someone, somehow, had survived. They flew immediately to the mountaintop, where Utnapishtim was gathered with his family and servants. The gods had never been so happy to see a human. Utnapishtim made the sacrifice, with the gods gathered around him. Together, they mourned all those that had been lost. Together they made peace between the gods and the humans. There was only Inlil, the one who had started all of this and had pushed for the extermination of the humans. The gods heard him approaching in anger, yelling that one had survived. Ishtar was the first to stand and face him, then Ea, then Shamash, then one by one, the others. They stood between him and Utnapishtim him and his people, the remnant of humanity. They had all seen the waters, the bodies, they had made a horrible mistake, and this would end here. They wouldn't let humans be wiped from the earth. We don't know if Enlil agreed or if he just complied, but eventually he was allowed to approach Utnapishtim. He took Utnapishtim and his wife by their hands and led them to their boat. Sitting down with them, he touched Utnapishtim and his wife on their foreheads. He told them that, before the flood, they were mortal. Now, they would live forever. Cutting back to Gilgamesh, Utnapishtim said that that was how he had been granted eternal life. Who would call an audience of the gods for Gilgamesh? Gilgamesh begged, though. Finally, Utnapishtim relented. There might be another way. Gilgamesh sat up straight, eager for an answer. Utnapishtim said that he could be persuaded to talk to the gods again, and maybe, for someone like Gilgamesh, they could be persuaded to give the gift to Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh just had to do one thing. Stay awake. For six days. Gilgamesh looked at him with... Was that it? He had fought Hugeness, the Bull of Heaven, had walked to the Garden of the Gods, and crossed the Waters of Death. He had already been awake for nearly six days. This was nothing. Utnapishtim said, oh, okay, well, then do it. Sit down here on this calm beach, on the edge of the world, and be alone with your thoughts for six days. If at the end you're awake, you can have what you came here to get. Gilgamesh agreed. That was easy. He sat down on the warm sand, and listened to the gentle waves. He felt the warm wind blowing. He blinked. In an instant, 
Utna pished him was before him, shaking his shoulder. Gilgamesh swatted him away. What was he doing? Gilgamesh had just sat down here, and now he was trying to move him? Was this part of it? Also, why was Gilgamesh surrounded by moldy bread? There were five loaves around him, at varying degrees of staleness or rot. Utnapishtim said that he and his wife had made a loaf for every day Gilgamesh had slept. Utnapishtim's face was pained and sad, and he took no joy in telling Gilgamesh he had failed. Gilgamesh had fallen asleep almost immediately, and he would not have eternal life. He would die. Someday. Not today. I pictured Gilgamesh staggering forward and doing the atrocious Darth Vader no scream from Revenge of the Sith. I, I won't do it. In reality, well, as close to reality as we can be with this story, Gilgamesh was utterly broken. He'd given up years of his life and done the impossible only to fail when his goal was in sight. If legendary heroes doubled over and deeply sobbed, then that's what Gilgamesh did. A few hours later, the ferryman returned and said that he had fixed the boat. They could make their way back to the mainland now. Gilgamesh could go home. Unapishtim had a small gift for him. It was the not-so-subtle gift of a bath for Gilgamesh and new kingly clothes so that he could go back to Uruk not covered in stinking furs of dead animals. As they watched Gilgamesh board the boat with the ferryman, looking every bit a king, Utnapishtim's wife spoke up, whispered in his ear, and Utnapishtim agreed. They yelled out for Gilgamesh to wait. They had something else for him. Gilgamesh plunged his hand into the stream. They told him he would feel the thorns cutting into his skin, but he just needed to hold on and pull. If he did, he would have the plant. The plant's name was to be The Old Men Are Young Again, and I bet you can imagine what it did. If you ate even part of the plant, years would drop from your body like a heavy burden. It wasn't immortality, but it was a secret of the gods. And if Gilgamesh was smart about it, he could live for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. Gilgamesh hugged Utnapishtim and his wife and thanked them. He was beaming. This was it. This was exactly what he had been looking for. He said goodbye to the couple, and the last he saw of them, they were standing on the beach, waving and smiling in the faraway land beyond the waters of death. They didn't need to go into speedboat mode to avoid dying this time, and the trip back across the waters was leisurely and joyful. He was waiting until he made it back to Uruk to eat the plant. He was going to share bits of it with all the elderly people in the city, and together, they will be young again and build the greatest city the world would ever know. Long after Gilgamesh separated with the ferryman, he stopped at a pool less than a day away from Uruk. It was cool and nice, and Gilgamesh bathed and enjoyed it. He was startled when he felt something at his feet. He saw it float to the surface. It was some snake, a serpent. It wasn't poisonous, as far as Gilgamesh knew, and it was an old snake by the look of the body with its deep scars. It swam away from him, and Gilgamesh let it go. Today was a great day. He was going to return triumphant to his city. He spent longer in the bath than he meant to, and he emerged and he put on his clothes slowly as the warm sun dried him. He picked up his pack. He almost jumped when he saw the snake underneath it. But the snake was more scared than he was. It bolted. It wasn't the snake he had seen earlier. That one was scarred and old and warped and on the verge of death. This one was the same species, but years younger. Gilgamesh was surprised and mildly grossed out by the skin of the snake that had shed underneath his bag. It was thick and old and scarred. It was thick and old and 
scarred. Gilgamesh watched the snake slither away, and he dropped his bag. He pulled everything out until he found it, or what was left of it, the scraps the snake had left of the flower. Gilgamesh was in disbelief. He had made it so far. He had done so much. He tried picking up the scant edges of the leaves that the snake had left, even licking the bag where the flower had been, but to no avail. The snake had completely eaten the flower. His quest, so close to being finished, was now a complete and utter failure. This is where I picture Gilgamesh doing the really atrocious Darth Vader no scream. Gilgamesh returned to Uruk. The people were glad to have their king back and didn't really seem to care that he was going to die someday. I mean, welcome to the exclusive club that includes all but two humans. It's said that Gilgamesh's quest was complete, but obviously not in the way he thought it would be complete. It was complete because the door was forever closed to him. The ferryman wouldn't take him back across the waters of death. And even if he did, Utnapishtim would never give him immortality and the flower was gone. Gilgamesh would die someday. He had his chance and failed. Maybe it helped that it wasn't something that had been imposed on him. He had tried his best, and now he would have to accept the consequences. Regardless, Gilgamesh had to come to grips with the concept that one day, he too, would die. We don't know if Gilgamesh found peace, but to me, it seems like he accepted death, and for the first time since laying Enkidu to rest, began living. He resumed being a king to his people, got married, and had a family. He didn't go questing for everlasting life again. I don't know who he first told the story of his quest, of his failures, and of Utnapishtim in the flood, but that person told another that the king had an amazing story to tell. Soon, Gilgamesh was telling it for groups of two and three. Then, two and three hundred. The city was enchanted, seeing as there wasn't writing from the time before the flood. The only knowledge they had of the world pre-flood came from stories that had been half-remembered and passed down through generations. One day, Gilgamesh saw the tablets that someone had carved, and tears began to well up in his eyes. It was his name, carved in stone, just as his old friend Enkidu had said, just weeks after they first met. Gilgamesh had become the great man that Enkidu had told him he could be. When he died, his children, his wife, his concubines, and his people, the ones who had cried out so fervently against him that Enkidu had been created to humble him, celebrated his life and honored him in death. Gilgamesh did some great and heroic things, but I like to imagine that he was celebrated most of all because he hadn't just told his story. He had found and told the story of his people. He had connected them with their ancestors and preserved the time before the flood. He hadn't just done it for his name and his glory. He did it for his people, for all people. Gilgamesh's story, in my opinion, is deeply human. It's a story of loss, failure, and change. He was a man who had made some terrible missteps. Remember his life pre-Inkidu. But he changed his life. Made a friend, and then lost that friend. He was terrified of death, so he set out on a quest. But in an interesting turn, at least for mythology, he failed. Twice. And he had to find a way forward. After life didn't quite work out the way he thought it would. That is being human, failing to achieve your goals, yet still needing to continue on. 
coping with the loss of a good friend, and being terrified in the face of death is more reflective of the human condition than something like Hercules fighting the Hydra. I also love that, after Gilgamesh failed, he made something. He told the story, and that story, well, it's what you just listened to. It goes to show that there's hope after failure. You can even work for years, striving for a goal, and fail utterly. Twice, and you can still do something great. You just have to keep trying, and be open to whatever life has for you. It might not be what you thought it would be, but it might just be epic. The narrative's last words about Gilgamesh, before he died, were not about his name or his exploits, though those were very important to the story. They were praising him for being a good king, and for dealing justly with his people. It makes me think that the importance is not in our great name, or the accolades we receive, but that what we do for others, how we treat others, is what truly matters in this life. Okay, also full disclosure, that reading of the story of Gilgamesh gaining some small solace after his failure is just my reading of the story. I think the text supports it, but you probably won't find it in any scholarly articles. I've just found it kind of moving that, even though we die, the stories we tell live on and echo through the centuries. Also, I could do a whole episode on flood stories. There are flood stories literally from all over the world. I link to a site with summaries from over 100 different cultures and people groups. I can't begin to do the concept of the Great Flood Justice, so check out some resources I linked. It's really interesting. Next week, I don't know what we're talking about. I think it'll be a Grimm episode. I mean, a story from the Grimm brothers. Being fixated on death this week has been grim enough. I did this ahead of time so that I could take some time off for the holidays. We will be back next week, and next year. Happy holidays, and Happy New Year 2017, everyone. In lieu of other announcements, there's a new episode of Career Day out this week. Career Day, as you probably know, is our other podcast, and it's hosted by my wife. This week, she talks about language with a creative director at Rosetta Stone, a high school Spanish teacher, and an exchange student in Germany who's from South Africa. There's dog hedgehog drama, brain quesadillas, and talk of how grunge music can ruin your life. You can find it on iTunes at itunes.careerdayshow.com and basically everywhere else by searching for Career Day by Carissa Weiser. I mean, I think it's awesome, and not just because I help out with it, my wife hosts it. It's really cool to hear from real people about the different paths they take. So yeah, if you're interested, check it out at careerdayshow.com. The creature this week is the Grogok. It's from Irish folklore. I know you've been wondering... But when a mommy fairy and a daddy human, or vice versa, love each other very much, they find ways to express their love. Eventually, a little baby Grogok comes along. And it's a boy. Because they're always boys. I guess that makes the baby shower shopping easy. Anyway, they grow up so fast. Kind of literally, because when they come of age, they look perpetually like small elderly men. So kind of like Benjamin Button, but they never transform into Brad Pitt. And they have a smell only a supernatural mother or father could love, too because they are known for their lack of hygiene. Despite way, way too many creatures and characters on this podcast being hairy and naked, even Enkidu in this series, the Grogok has a human side. It does not go around naked. It's not an animal. It slathers its naked body in mud and twigs. That's better? The Grogok's parents raised him well, though. The Grogok just wants to be helpful and will assist farmers with their daily tasks. If you offer to pay him, though, he will become bitterly insulted. So yeah, if a moderately naked, elderly-looking man with a mouthful of cavities offers to help you, just let him. That is, if he can stand the smell. If not, just make the extremely insulting gesture of trying to pay him for his services, 
and he'll probably still keep working for you. He's just that nice. Just try not to breathe through your nose whenever he's around. The only payment they will take is just a saucer of milk left outside of your house. But I don't know if they have to fight stray splinter cats, cat siths, and butter cats for it. My money's on the splinter cat. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. The music is by Pine to Bear, Blue Dot Sessions. And there are links to even more music in the show notes. Thanks again to Loot Crate for sponsoring today's episode. This January, see where it all started and explore the iconic origins with historic items featuring Superman, Captain America, Mario, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, including, as always, the monthly t-shirt and pin. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive this month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So make sure to head to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends to save $3 off any new subscription today. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.